past the town of tribulation and straight on to Daring Do. Chapter 3 After breakfast, the contents of the boat cupboards were loaded into the Land Rover. We started by placing the large items such as the cushions in the boot area first. The second row of seats had been folded flat to make more room. I carried smaller objects such as the kettle and sleeping bags downstairs and lined them up in the conservatory. They look like patients in a waiting room, I laughed. Mm, said Grandma, waiting to see if there's room for them, no doubt. She struggled to lift some of the more awkward-shaped pieces to the car, but after about half an hour we had managed to fit everything in. Small items had been wedged between larger ones, pots and pans balanced on the top, while charts and books were posted under the seats. "'You'll have to hold the cat box on your lap,' she said. "'There's no room in the back.' She was almost at the door, keys in hand, when she turned back suddenly. "'I almost forgot,' she said as she opened the door of the broom cupboard. Several spare leashes were hanging on a hook inside, and next to them there was a little red jacket with the words Small Dog printed on the side. An excited chirp from the pet carrier told me that it didn't belong to a dog, but to a very unusual cat. With everything packed, we rattled along the lane from Grey Malkin Cottage and slowly out onto the main road. Through the wing mirror, I could see a long line of impatient drivers behind us, eager to go about their day's business and annoyed that they had had the misfortune to get stuck behind someone who was driving only slightly faster than a snail's pace. "'They'll just have to wait,' said Grandma as every bend and corner caused the contents of the car to clatter and clank, slip and slide. After about ten minutes we saw the sign for the old harbour, and with one final lurch to the left took the track down the lane towards the waterside. For about a mile the lane ran parallel to a disused canal, at the end of which lay the inner basin. It was here that the Fiona had her birth, and as we approached I craned my neck to try and spot the old girl, as Grandad used to call her. There she is, I called out suddenly. I can see her. The Fiona was moored on the opposite bank, as the side nearest to the road had no proper pathway or any access, as it had become so overgrown with nettles and brambles long ago. Still afloat, then, asked Grandma with slightly less enthusiasm. She looked straight ahead, as if she was avoiding looking at the boat for as long as possible. When we reached the car park next to the pontoon, she said, Before we get out, we have to deal with this flibberty gibbet. I didn't ask, but suspected that it was another one of her terms of endearment for her cat. A harness and leash were produced from the glove box and slipped over Dotty's front legs. Now hold on to her, said Grandma. Hold very, very tight. I soon understood the need for the warning, for as the door opened, Dotty shot out like an express train, straining at the leash and making her way towards the water's edge. I managed to pull her back and directed her towards the narrow crossing over the lock and up the cinder pathway on the other side. 
The lock separated the inner basin from the outer one, at the end of which stood a pair of massive lock gates and the seven estuary beyond. As we reached the top of the path, it turned to the right and ran along a narrow strip of land between the seven to the left and the inner basin to the right. It seemed that the cat knew the way better than I did, because at the spot where the pathway became wider, she suddenly veered to the right and dragged me towards a small gate that was half hidden in the hedgerow. I lifted the makeshift rope loop that kept it shut and went down the stone steps on the other side. The pathway at the bottom passed several old boats that had been abandoned by their owners, and I was glad that Grandma had decided to return to the Fiona and make her ship-shape and Bristol fashion, rather than letting her rot away. "'Tie her onto one of the cleats on the stern,' came a voice from behind me, as Dotty leapt onto the Fiona's deck in one bound, while I struggled to follow her on board, untangling her leash from the guardrail. Grandma was carrying the box of cleaning materials and was out of breath when she arrived. Tightly, she panted. After a few attempts, my fingers remembered the rope pathways that Grandad had taught me and I executed a beautiful clove hitch that held the leash securely. The cat seemed to accept that she must sit patiently and was content to curl up on a neatly coiled rope at the back of the cockpit and watch through sly eyes the shoals of brown trout swimming by. Although no one had sailed or even visited the Fiona for many months, apart from a good covering of green algae on some parts of her deck, she looked clean and tidy. She was a French yacht with two cabins, a four-cabin and a saloon, separated by the heads, which was the nautical name for the toilet. Her hull was blue and the name Fiona was picked out in black and gold lettering on her stern. Well, said Grandma. She took a deep breath. I suppose we'd better get to work on this greenery or people will sing the owl and the pussycat as we go by. I looked puzzled for a moment and then laughing realised what she meant and chanted, The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. Grandma joined in and together we recited the whole poem, adding the action she had taught me when I was much younger. I would sit on her knee and we would share a picture book that illustrated the nonsense poem. I felt pleased that it was one of the books that I had put in the keep pile during our cupboard day. Ah, said Grandma, if it's green on top, it will be grey below. She took a small key from her pocket and inserted it into the padlock that secured the hatch to the washboard. Grandad had explained that the entrance cover was named after the old-fashioned washboards that his mother would have scrubbed her clothes on because it was a similar shape. The padlock opened easily and Grandma slid back the hatch and lifted the washboard onto the seat next to Dotty. She hesitated before going down into the cabin below. As if feeling the need to explain, she turned to me and said, Too many memories, I'm afraid. And then cheerily added, but most of them are good, so let's get on with it. She nimbly climbed down the three wooden steps into the cabin and waited while I did the same. I'm glad we didn't leave anything on board, she said, running her finger over the grey mould that seemed to have covered every surface. But we'll soon have her ship-shape and Bristol fashion, I chimed in.
For the rest of the morning we cleaned and polished, sprayed and scrubbed. Grandma did the nasty job, as she called it. This involved cleaning the heads, but soon the little sea toilet looked brand new. The bright red wash basin gleamed, and a clean towel had been hung on the hook behind the door. I cleaned the galley, and when all the shelves were free from mould, I thoroughly dried them so that the plates, mugs and dishes could be slotted into their racks. Grandma opened the hatches in the forecabin and saloon and said, We'll let the air in and get everything nice and dry before we bring the cushions and curtains over. She filled the bucket with clean water, threw in two scrubbing brushes and said, Time to swab the decks, me hearty. I started at the bow and Grandma at the stern, and soon the white deck was returning to its former glory. It was just as I was moving from the port to the starboard side that I caught my foot on the latch of the anchor locker and would have fallen overboard if it hadn't been that I'd made a last-minute grab for the forestay. I held on tight, poised above the water, and just managed to swing myself back onto the deck. Landlubber! A voice came from nearby, and at first I could not see who had hurled the insult my way. Then a boy paddling a small tender drew level with our boat, and from the look of disgust on his face, I realised that it was him that had made the statement. "'Big-headed boat boy!' I retaliated, unable to think of a better insult at short notice. He was obviously so at home on the water that he would never fall overboard or come anywhere close to it as I had done. He sat near the prow of the small boat, and rather than in the centre of it, he dipped the paddle first to the left and then to the right. To show how superior he was, he totally ignored me and carried on to a large yacht moored in the middle of the basin. Lunchtime, Grandma called from the cockpit. I watched until the boy had tied the tender to the stern of the Morning Star. Then I made my way towards the stern. "'Goodness me!' Grandma exclaimed. "'You look as if you've lost a bob and found a tanner.' I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded so funny that I forgot to be cross and smiled as I tucked into the bread, cheese and lemonade. As we ate, I told her what had happened, giving more details about the boat boy and his rudeness than about my slip and what I had said in return. "'He's called Bob,' she said. All three of us have not had the best of years, and you two have got more in common than you might realise, she said. His father left home last year, and his mother has had to go back to work full time. Every day he comes over to their boat, starts the engine, and just sits on her. If you watch him, he never looks out across the water, but instead sits facing the road. I think he hopes that one day his dad will drive down it and everything will be just like it used to be. My dad had left when I was a baby and had not been in touch since. I'd never known him so I didn't miss him. But I missed Ma and I knew that Grandma missed Grandad. It was sometimes like an ache that could not be cured with medicines or kind words and I felt sorry that I had not been more considerate towards Boat Boy Bob. Thank you.